This is Locking Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Mauerbytes Labs, after learning about Bluetooth permissions in the Donald Trump 2020 mobile app, we took the opportunity to understand, should we worry about Bluetooth overall? Turns out, it depends. Bluetooth connectivity and beacon technology are powerful tools in getting users to click, view, remember, and buy certain products, both online and in the real world. But there's an easy way to opt out of this digital tracking. Just turn Bluetooth off on your device. I wish I could do that for more of my problems, honestly. Also on Labs, our Mac researcher analyzed a new Mac ransomware being spread through online torrents for the program Little Snitch. When tested, though, this odd piece of ransomware would encrypt files with little strategy, and only after several days. We're looking further into this one, but it's safe to say this isn't just a case of poor malware making. It's likely a cover for something sneakier, like a data stealer. So not only can you no longer trust pirated software, you can't even trust pirated ransomware. Finally, we tried to answer the question of whether Chromebooks need additional antivirus protection. These always online workhorses may be easy to use, but individuals should refrain from trusting them too much, as their popularity could draw the attention of threat actors. Think of it like those excessively annoying complaints that when a band becomes popular, they become uncool. Except here, the complaints are warranted. In cybersecurity news across the world, CBR Online reported that the University of California, San Francisco, paid more than $1 million to decrypt a limited number of services following a ransomware attack. I can't wait for the UC's administration to transfer the burden to students through increased prices for tuition. Researchers from Bitdefender and Cisco Talos reported that the advanced persistent threat group Prometheum expanded its efforts, hitting victims in Colombia, India, Canada, and Vietnam with its surveillance malware Strong Pity 3. The strongest pity I can find is that Prometheum, which has been tracked since at least 2012, is somehow still active and wreaking havoc. Naked Security warned website operators, like those of us at Mauerbytes Labs, about a new scam that impersonates WordPress, uh, the enormously popular publishing platform used for personal and corporate blogs. The uncovered scam involves a malicious email claiming that new DNS security features will be coming soon to users' domains. Clicking through the email brings users to a fake but legitimate-looking landing page that can swipe account credentials. Leave it to cybersecurity bloggers to uncover a scam affecting cybersecurity blogs. Good job, community. Dark Reading reported that threat actors attempted to spread ransomware to nearly a dozen major U.S. corporations through compromised networks in a broader attack that could have disrupted the U.S. supply chain. The ransomware attacks failed to take root, though, because of the company's advanced threat protection. So, yes, malware protection works. Use it. Finally, Bleeping Computer told readers that the TrickBot Trojan revealed a tricky new evasion technique, scanning for screen resolutions to detect whether the malware was being tested on a virtual machine, a popular approach to malware analysis. So, malware researchers, 
please adjust your virtual machine software that defaults to 800 by 600 or 1024 by 768 resolutions. Not just because of this new evasion technique, but also, come on, your eyes deserve better. Our main story today concerns the Internet of Things, IoT. For years, internet capabilities have crept into modern consumer products, providing sometimes convenient, sometimes extraneous internet connectivity. Yes, we all laughed at the internet-enabled juicer, which, when scanning an expired juice packet, refused to make you juice. And we can laugh at the internet-enabled toaster, which... really... But for many products today, it's nearly impossible to purchase an up-to-date, state-of-the-art device without internet connectivity. Our washers, dryers, refrigerators, speakers, and televisions all seem to be packaged today with corresponding apps and Wi-Fi connections. Want a wireless multi-room speaker setup? It'll likely have Amazon Alexa or Google Assistant. Want a new 4K TV? Good luck finding a model without a handful of apps baked right into the software. Even the newest models of refrigerators have webcam functionality, so you can check how much milk you have when you're at the grocery store. This increase in IoT devices has an obvious outcome, a broader attack surface for threat actors. Not only that, but with more devices connecting to the internet, There are also more devices collecting your data and analyzing it to send you more ads more frequently for more products. Finally, devices like smart doorbells have ushered in privatized surveillance networks across America, creating an invasive digital neighborhood watch. To help us better understand the Internet of Things, including the cybersecurity and data privacy concerns of IoT devices, and what you can do to stay safe, we're talking today to J.P. Taggart, Senior Security Researcher with Malwarebytes. J.P., welcome back to the show. Pleasure to be here again. Always a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. When we last spoke, we discussed VPNs, and we learned about your work you know, with VPNs. So tell us about your research within the Internet of Things. So IoT is, as you said, because of the greater surface attack, it's a super interesting thing to look at. And in the past, I've looked at a number of devices, whether it was for evaluating if deploying them could be done in a safe manner, or just to poke at the device to see if there were any glaring vulnerabilities. And that's yielded a ton of interesting research and just kind of reinforced my opinion, which was, don't, if you can. If you can (laughs) avoid it, don't. So I'm boring that way. I'm not going to say there are cases where the benefit outweighs the dangers of owning or deploying such a device. I've yet to come across one where I'm going, oh, okay, well, this is acceptable. There's a ton of cool stuff that you can find and a ton of functionality that would raise eyebrows once you start poking at these devices. I've taken a number of them apart and it's it's absolutely fascinating research. Let's get right into it. We can lump concerns about Internet of Things devices into two broad categories, right? Concerns of cybersecurity and concerns of online privacy. Let's start with cybersecurity concerns. Things like, are these cybersecure? You know, can they be easily hacked? Do they come with easily guessed, predictable usernames and passwords? What is the cybersecurity state of affairs with IoT? So, no surprise here, my personal opinion on IoT devices is that most 
of them are not cyber secure. There's a real problem here because you're making a device that has a certain kind of functionality that allows remote access. And you're not going to be able to defend against your potential attacker having that device to poke at it physically outside of their control. So you can try to make like an internet-enabled doorbell or toaster or whatever as secure as you want. I can go on Amazon and I can order two or three of them, which is typically what I would do in an IoT assessment engagement. I order a couple of devices. And the first thing I do is I start taking them apart and finding ways of accessing these devices that the average user wouldn't have access to. Mm -hmm. So when they're manufactured, in fact, when any electronic is manufactured, very often they'll have some pins on the daughter board that contains the brain of the device that are used for quality control down the assembly line. So a bunch of chips are dropped, the board is ready, it goes down to the next thing, we plug it into these diagnostic pins, and maybe the firmware is applied. Or further down the line, you plug in some pins and you just test basic functionality. And this is so that when you get the device after ordering it wherever you do, they have a reasonable amount of confidence that it's going to be working. The problem is, is from an attacker's perspective, once I've gotten my three toasters, the first one is a right <laughs> I'm going to disassemble it completely, look for those pins, and use some tools to try and access the device in a way that the original manufacturers don't expect. It's not intended. You're going through their diagnostic pins to see if you can look at the firmware. You're pulling the firmware off the device to extract it, to have a poke at it, to see what's, what's included. And a significant portion of those devices are kind of a race to the bottom. You can get a whole bunch of components that already exist and kind of glue them together and get the functionality you want. So the guys who made the toaster, they didn't make the web server that comes with it. They didn't write the operating system that runs that toaster. These are all things they grab off a shelf and kind of glue together. And if I'm taking apart that toaster and accessing it, then there's, there's a wealth of information that I can find as I said earlier, stuff that would raise eyebrows. Maybe the original creators of the toaster don't even know it, but there are hard-coded credentials. Or if I look at what version of operating system that web server is running on, it's probably several revisions older than whatever's current, and there are known vulnerabilities. And then that gives me the ability to potentially take over the toaster and make it do a bunch of stuff that it shouldn't, because... Mm-hmm it's not a toaster anymore. It's a computer that happens to be able to toast toasts. With that, right, I think there's a lot of, maybe not misconceptions, but just a lack of understanding about why being able to gain access to these devices is actually like dangerous. And I think some people might say, well, okay, like you can make toast when I didn't say you could make toast. And maybe that's thinking too small. Can you give us an example of Why is it dangerous to have one of these nodes in your home be hacked? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's a bunch of components that are glued together. So it's a small computer running any number of pieces of software that also happens to make toasts. So if it's a small computer, then it doesn't need to just make toasts. You can leverage some of the functionality to use it as a pivot point inside of someone's network. 
So because it's a small computer, I can, and if I find a way that I can subvert the toaster and make it my own, I can use it as a pivot point to launch attacks into your network. I can use it as a method of gathering information on you because I've got a device inside your network and I can do all sorts of bad things. So at this point, it's no longer a toaster. It's an attack platform that is also a computer that also happens to do toasts. Yeah, and we've seen attacks, we've seen malware campaigns that utilize IoT devices. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we just need to look to Mirai as a a prime example. And it didn't require any uh, lead Hexor skills to subvert these devices because they came with a default login password that was extremely easy to guess. So somebody wrote a botnet that went looking for all the devices that they could, that they knew they were easy to break into, broke into them, and then turned them into a botnet. So now you have a million toasters on the internet, and you can make them make toast, but you can also tell them at the same time, I want you to send bogus information to a website. And if a million toasters are asking a question to your web server, depending on what kind of horsepower you got, your web server might just keel over because it's getting too many requests at the same time. That's kind of what we saw with with Mirai and all the descendants from it. Let's move on to the data privacy concerns. Concerns about, you know, are these devices good with our data? You know, meaning how much data do they collect? Do they make any known efforts to protect that data? And what would a company even want with my type of data? What are your main concerns that that you found when researching IoT devices in terms of data privacy? So, again, not a really good prognosis on (laughs) the industry as a whole. Are the devices good with your privacy? No, they're not. The vast majority of them are not. Just flat out no. Flat out no. But, you know, remember, I have my giant tinfoil sombrero. (laughs) So you've got a a number of of possible issues. You might have a fly-by-night company or a company that looks very promising but eventually folds, and now they've aggregated, they've got a complete list of every single person that's ever bought the device, Mm -hmm. and those people have most probably had to create a user account with an email address associated in it in order to use the cool IoT functions. Mm -hmm. Once that company disappears those lists tend not to disappear. They tend to be kind of a last-ditch monetization, somebody Mm -hmm. on the way out, or even while the company's running. If they suffer a breach, that information is valuable. Lists of known, current, live emails of the toaster owners, they've got market value. If I want to start spamming people about bread, well, there's a targeted audience. If I just want to start spamming people, well, I'm pretty sure that when you registered your toaster, you did it with an email that was current and that you were monitoring. So good with your privacy? No. And also the data aggregated by these IoT devices it may not be apparent at first glance. Like, who cares if somebody knows that I use the toaster and I use a specific thickness of bread or whatever? Mm-hmm. But there's unintended uses. So you always, always have a toast every morning, except mm-hmm. on Friday and Saturday and Sunday, mm-hmm. where you're driving out of town, going to, I don't know, your cottage, 
where you have another toaster because you really like those toasters. Uh-huh. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's the different toaster under the same account that runs. Well, now I know you're not home on weekends. So that kind of data that can be aggregated from these companies not properly taking care of this data has a ton of value. Now, the example I gave you is kind of like the most glaring, like, ooh, ah. There's stuff that really, you look at it and you go, I don't, I don't know, I don't think it can be weaponized or it can be used in a way to get more information. But one of the things that I see happen with great big breaches and a lot of information gathered by OT devices is that disparate ones will be cobbled together to help build a life map of a user. So mm-hmm. on its own, how often I use my toaster, how thick my toasts are, mm-hmm. perhaps not quite as, as damning. But if you can tie that information from one area to another set of data, then it really starts building a complete map of the life of someone. So I know where they live. I know their email address. I know what time they do their toasts. Thank you automated coffee internet machine. I know what time they have a coffee. Thank you, toaster. I can grab their email address because as part of the registration process, they had to enter an email address. Thank you, IoT fridge, which you know forces you to enter your Gmail credentials as part of the setup. And that particular example is actually something that happened. Those same IoT fridges wound up mining for cryptocurrency and being part of a bot. Oh, when did that happen? I'd have to look at the exact date, but I know that, that it was one of the things that went, made the rounds where every security professional was going like, great, you know, I told you, mm-hmm. no reason in having a web server in your fridge because look at what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And as part of the setup, forcing me to relinquish my credentials. Yeah. So now not only is, you know, my fridge mining for crypto, but my Gmail account's been compromised. Right, right. And there's also a different side of this, of of data privacy with IoT that I've seen that isn't so much, hey, here's this portrait of you that gets compiled through various breaches or, or, or through this crypto mining, but also there's opposition to the very the very purpose of some of these tools. And I'm thinking of smart doorbells, uh, which have risen in popularity dramatically throughout the United States. And there are many, I think, legitimate concerns from digital privacy advocates for something like like Ring, right? Amazon's doorbell system, in which it's billed as this, oh, this solution to folks who are stealing packages off your porch, off your front door. And that for some reason, right, the quote-unquote solution is a digital privatized surveillance network. And that, that's, that's, that shouldn't be our answer to anything, right? We shouldn't look to 24-hour streams of what's happening in a neighborhood. And if you have enough of these devices in a neighborhood, getting a pretty comprehensive view of everyone who walks down the street, every child who's riding their bike, uh, everyone who's walking their dog. And when you're looking at these things and you're getting notifications that there's someone you know, within the field of view, it just heightens this sense of suspicion and people can start pointing fingers at people who have done nothing wrong. Have you looked into smart doorbells? What's your take on them? 
I have, and I've gone to the extent of purchasing some cheap knockoffs and actually disassembling them, connecting semi-specialized but easily available equipment to them to extract firmware and stuff like that. And again, all that I see there, nothing I want. If tomorrow the powers that be said, hey, we're going to put a post with a camera at every house interval, and it's going to be pretty much like China, you know, cameras everywhere, people would be up in arms. But you can, you know, you can bring it in on the sly and say, if you don't want somebody to steal your Amazon package, it comes in easier, but has the same result. Looking at the knockoff models was super interesting because what I was looking for was, are there hidden administrative backdoors? In some cases, the cloud infrastructure that, that is offered with the device stores your footage in a different jurisdiction where different laws apply. So oh. that's great. Let's, let's, sell, let's undersell Ring with devices that are made in another country. And now we've managed to deploy our own nationwide camera systems that just siphon off all that to a foreign nation as part of their intelligence gathering apparatus, which, again, yeah, bad idea. If you're going to have a doorbell product like that, then it should store the information locally using the cloud portion of it. Uh, Not really. Great. If you want to make sure that nobody steals something off your Porsche, or if you want to have evidence to provide to the police afterwards, you should control the infrastructure. It, brings us back to the problem that everybody's going to have to turn into a system administrator and undertake all these things that might not be within their technological wheelhouse. But if you want that kind of functionality, I'm afraid you're going to have to learn those things. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned about the fridges that were used in a crypto mining campaign. And you mentioned, you know, the security researchers said, hey, look, we told you. We knew this was going to happen. And that's something that I wanted to better understand about IoT devices. We've, we've had these devices for years now. And like I said, you know, the internet has slowly crept in to, to many of our, our home goods. What I'm curious about is something that you alluded to is, is did we know, you know from the very first batch of products that these were going to be a potential disaster, both for cybersecurity and data privacy? Or did something like go wrong along the way? Uh, I think what went wrong is the lure of the feature set. So if you have, we'll take, for example, the doorbell device that records whoever walks into your doorstep, whether it's the UPS guy or that sketchy lady who's going to try to steal whatever you've ordered or any of those things, there's greater and greater functionality that came with them and the ability to access that through an app on your phone that's kind of a killer feature because I may not be at home. Maybe I'm not working from home. Maybe I'm working from an office. And then my phone buzzes me and I'm like, oh, great. You know, the UPS guy dropped off, whatever. And then my phone buzzes me again as that package is being stolen. That's the kind of feature set that's very, very attractive. And like anything else, you're going to have that one security guy in the room who's going to say, hey, you know, maintaining that cloud infrastructure, doing it in a safe and secure way, making sure the devices aren't hackable, that's a lot of work. And they're usually the people that are told in the stand-up or in the meeting, hush, you're killing feature sets, which we think will make the product like a hit. Sure, yeah, we know. We'll deal with the security issues later. Let's rush to market cobble this device with like 
off-the-shelf parts and then become the de facto standard. So there's a lot of these devices that that was the goal, you know, rush to market, race to bottom, the cheapest, most features, and then security, you know, okay, that guy keeps bugging us. Eventually, we're not going to invite him to the meetings anymore because he's always like sticking broom handles in our wheels and, and slowing us down. So I think that in large part, that's what happened. You know, you want to become the dominant device for whatever service is being offered and security is going to take a back seat to that. Yeah, I also feel like there's no going back at this point. We've gone too far. We, we've accepted these features. And as just like a personal anecdote, our TV died, you know, within the past year. And when we went to go buy a new one, there was not a single television that was the size we wanted, the resolution we wanted, that didn't have smart capabilities, didn't have apps baked into the TV's interface, didn't have, oh, you can log into Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, Hulu, all those things, again, just just immediately baked in. We couldn't find a single model, you know? And yeah, I, I don't think there's a way to kind of turn back the clock anymore. Let's talk about what would a good hypothetical device even look like if one were to exist? What would it include or not uh, include? Or not include, yeah. I feel your pain. Smart TVs are... I think they have some sort of market studies that show that if the device has smart functionality, it sells better. And many times the experience of using a smart feature is going to be inferior. If I want to watch Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, I found the best device to do that is my PlayStation. It's really good at doing that. And if I try to do it in the TV, unless I bought a TV where the smart features were really kind of like the focal point, the experience isn't going to be as good. In some cases, I've seen some smart TVs that will bake ads into the UI. So you're, yeah. you know, you're navigating the smart menu on your television while being bombarded by adverts. If you could give me like upfront a notification that I'm getting a price break on the device because it's ad subsidized, maybe I'm going into that proposition with a greater amount of control. But in a lot of cases, that's not the case. We've also seen some devices that will brick themselves from the online functionality. So I was recently reading about some Samsung Blu-ray drivers where obviously there was a problem somewhere. They pushed an update and essentially bricked all the devices. Wow. And you're like, okay, great. No. Now I have this thing connected. I did the update because updating is good, and I've essentially bricked my Blu-ray player. We've seen televisions that have like a huge attack surface. I've seen some presentation at security conferences where they could turn a TV into a listening devices. There's leaks that have occurred that have proven that certain three-letter agencies had programs to take advantage of that. So what would be your options? Well, you get the TV you want with the resolution you want, and you never connect it to the internet, ever. Mm -hmm. If it's usable in that way, you never do. Or in some cases, earlier models, I don't know if it's current anymore, you had to buy a wireless adapter to, to use that functionality. Mm -hmm. I just pulled it out. I'm never connecting that, that device to, to the internet. I don't mm -hmm. want it to snitch on me. Your televisions, really, your only option is to maybe look at, at significantly higher-priced signage displays. 
So if you go to McDonald's and there's TVs across the top and they're showing you the menu and as as you walk in, you know, they switch from breakfast to lunch and you're not going to be able to get your coffee and your McDonut or whatever. But those kind of signage, usually pretty good quality and also no smart features in many cases, that's an option or never connecting the device to a network. That's Mm -hmm. the other. You don't benefit as much as you would believe from having a device that's connected. A lot of data is going to be generated. That data is going to be used to maximize profits by being sold to someone else so they can say, well, you know, here's how many toasts this guy has, or maybe turn the information over to an insurance company and say, well, you know, life insurance is not such a hot thing because we've got all these disparate sources of data that say that this is a single person and he's having four toasts every morning. And our fridge tells us that he goes through X amount of things of butter. I mean, this guy's going to have a heart attack by 30. So data is the new oil. And I have yet to find devices that really handle your data in a responsible and safe manner. And then these companies go out of business too. And if the device is is heavily dependent on the online component, then their going out of business might mean that you have to go get new speakers. Or they might decide that, you know, the speakers that you have that are perfectly fine and working great are the old model and they're going to officially retire them. So if you take them down and you buy the new model and you try to sell the old model to kind of amortize the cost of buying everything new, in some cases we'll find these devices will be deactivated because they're associated to an account. So we're filling the landfill with speakers or, or devices that have been artificially hobbled into not functioning because if, God forbid, you should allow the owner of the device to sell it, you're potentially killing off the sale of a new set of devices because there's something that's entered the second-hand market. I wanted to get back to the perfect, you know, the hypothetical good IoT. I I wanted to focus on the cybersecurity angle. Would something that's cybersecure, would that mean that it has randomized passwords that come unique to each device? Would it be that, you know, you're no longer cobbling together systems? Maybe there's actual complete ownership of the OS and the hardware and the software that interacts with it. What does a cybersecure IoT device look like? So... Not a race to the bottom with components, which increases the price of the device. So you're not using it, or if you are using off-the-shelf stuff, you fully understand what you're doing. It's not Lego, you're not plugging it in. And potentially you update the the underlying software. Security baked into the device. So let's say you're setting up your toaster. It will not have an easily guessable default password, Mm -hmm. and it will force you to change the username and password as part of the initial setup. I mean, Mm -hmm. stuff that routers are doing nowadays because they had the lesson learned the hard way. No baked-in security pass, uh, like administrative passwords in the devices. So as part of their testing, they might have a poorly designed device, might have admin-admin as an administrator account. To do that, no, change that. Make it more difficult for someone who has physical access. Although it's impossible to to completely make it unhackable, because if you have the device, I mean, you know, you can take an electron microscope and, and start looking at the chip that way. So it's hard to, to make it secure, but at least remove the low-hanging fruits. 
also, if the device can retain a basic functionality while not participating in the online component of it, that's an interesting proposition. So that if their service does disappear five years or 10 years down the line, it's not like the day that they stuff the key under the door at their company, your TV or your toaster or whatever just stops working. Maybe another one that I would say is, is no artificial DRM. So we've seen some fridges that had a water purifying filter in them. And if mm-hmm. your filter said, oh, you know, you've, you've reached the date where your filter should be replaced, well, you can't get any, any ice cubes anymore because that's part of the circuit. Mm-hmm. And if you try to go and buy a filter that's made by somebody else's, that's not like made by the company, that it'll recognize it, just like ink cartridges. So none of that artificial ecosystem. Yeah, the DRM, I believe, Digital Rights Management Software, is that what that stands for? Yes. I want to kind of emphasize, this hits every kind of level of society. This hits every person, and it hits uh, so many industries that we don't even really think about. From my understanding right now, for a couple of years, there's been a fight and a, a huge interest in farmers who want to buy slightly older tractors because newer tractors come with DRM that doesn't allow them to make modifications or add certain kinds of software to their tractors. And or make repairs. Yeah, or make repairs. And, and I don't think people understand actually how extremely technical tractors have become in the past 20 to 30 years where they're running multiple suites of software that require integration, collaboration to get us our food. You know, like these are things that we rely on that maybe we don't see. And like you said, not even being able to be allowed to repair a thing that you own. Well, if you're a farmer and you own that tractor, you better hope that you live within X number of miles of a dealership and Mm -hmm. that that particular dealership is well-staffed. And especially if you're a farmer, usually when you're going to be using these specialized equipment, you're within a fairly tight time frame. you got to harvest or you have to prep for something and you only have a certain amount of time. Now, if Mm -hmm. your tractor breaks, you can't fix it. The only person that can fix it is an authorized repair technician from the dealership, which might not be close to you. And the repair part might either not be available anymore or prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. And now you have a device that doesn't work. All the while, the manufacturer gathers all the telemetry from your tractor and turns around and sells it to make a profit as well. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm familiar with the whole tractor saga, I believe, the last time I checked on it, a lot of farmers were downloading hacked software from Romania or something so that wow. they could basically tell their tractor, you know, we changed the bearings on, on this portion of you and mm-hmm. uh, ignore that they're not like original equipment manufacturer, just run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, which is crazy that they would have to do that to have ownership of the thing that they own. I wanted to finally move here and close out. For folks out there who already have an IoT device in their home, what steps can folks take today to protect themselves? We're back to the average person now having to become a system administrator. The FBI has actually gone on record and said that IoT devices should be on a different network. We're starting to see that functionality creep into kind of like the medium to high tier routers where you can create a guest network. 
So I, if I work from home, I've got, you know, a NAS with some personal files and a printer and stuff. I don't want my little nephew to be able to root around the NAS or something. So I create like a standalone wireless network that the guests can use. So that's one thing that would be recommended. Isolate your personal network from those devices. There are some situations where if the IoT infrastructure is imposed on you, it's downright hostile. So we've seen some apartment buildings try to do away with apartment managers and instead deploy all these IoT devices so that they can keep an eye on stuff. Maybe your lease says you're not allowed to have parties, and if your IoT-enabled door open and closes X number of times, that'll flag an alert. I mean, those are huge invasions of privacy. I'd say avoid IoT if you can. Isolate the IoT devices on their own network. So if they need internet access, fine. You stick all your devices on that. You give them internet access. But they can't jump into your personal stuff like your home office or your NAS or those kind of things. Those are kind of the, the main recommendations. Again, all of these things like are assuming that people are going to become system administrators of the network. There's a lot that can be gathered from YouTube University. You can go through it and find out how to do it. It does require a time investment. It requires you to spend an afternoon that you could have been in front of Netflix watching a good movie. Instead, you're ripping your hair out, figuring out how to create like a sub-guest network on your router. Sometimes you might not even have that functionality if you get a router from, from your ISP. You might not have full control of it. And then we're back to what I mentioned recently in a VPN article where you essentially have the, the ISP's router and then downstream you have your own, which you fully control that device and then you can add that mm -hmm. functionality. Well, there's a cost involved with that. Now you have to buy another router. Next time you're having problems with your internet, when you talk to their support, they might make you pull that out of the equation because they won't give you support. Yeah, I wish we didn't have to become, like you said, basically system admins for the management of our own lives, you know, our own online lives. Because that's beyond, that's, that's asking too much. That's it. For the longest time, I've resisted having IoT devices everywhere. That seems to be kind of the norm. If you, if you talk to the starry-eyed consumer who doesn't understand, they're like, oh, this is great. You know, I can turn a light bulb off <laughs> in my closet back home while I'm on vacation. Where all the other IT people are like, I consciously avoid having any IoT stuff. I've got a few... They're segregated in their own network. I've actually bought an extra one, which I took apart and poked at. I'm not really the common guy. I'm more of an edge case. Right. But yeah, if you're going to benefit from that functionality, then you're going to have to invest the time to fully understand the technology. Well, here's to one day hoping that the burden won't be so much on us. <laughs> <laughs> JP, thank you again for being on our show today. To our listeners at home, We'll talk to you again in two weeks when we discuss Bluetooth connectivity and beacon technology with Chris Boyd. What is it? Is it compromising your data? And what can you do to protect yourself?